HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hurstranch.com. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, joined by a few dozen little jars of spices blended by Lior Lev Sarkaris. Hi, how are you? <laughs> good, good. How are you doing? I'm going to let you actually say the name of your business so I don't butcher it. Uh, the name of the business is La Boite, which means the box, and it's home uh, for La Boite Biscuit, which is the cookie box, and La Boite Epice, which is the spice box. Yeah, and where are you located, up near Columbus Circle? I'm at 724 11th Avenue, so 11th Avenue and 51st. Yeah, so all the way over in Hell's no man's land. Yeah. Hell's Kitchen, yeah. <laughs> but in Hell's Kitchen, Lior blends some of the most fantastic spices for a lot of chefs around the city and around the world absolutely yeah um but you grew up a uh, kind of a international uh born and raised in israel as you wrote to me a small kibbutz in the galilee uh then lived in rome in brussels um 
Do you remember what you ate during your childhood? What kind of food was surrounded you? I yeah, of course I remember a lot. I mean, growing up in a kibbutz, which isn't the biggest food scene out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Israel, generally speaking, is a very interesting place as far as food goes. The uh, combination of Eastern European, North African, Persian, uh, even Latin cuisine, Yemenite, everything combined into such a small place creates a very uh, unique cuisine. Yeah. And then growing up in places like uh, Rome. And then Brussels uh, was also very interesting, yeah. the exposure. And what age were you in Rome? In oh, I was very young. Yeah. In Rome, I was about a year old yeah. uh, for uh, about a year or so. But in Brussels, I was already seven, eight years old for about four years. So I was more aware of what I was eating. And I was exposed to uh, things that, uh, as a regular child in Israel, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have the chance. I think having a Chateaubriand at the age of seven <laughs> was a big a big moment, yeah. I think, in my career. But did you take certain things from your, you know, rearing in Israel with you to Rome in Brussels? Uh, I was too young to... I didn't cook at that point. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting as a child. I mean, we never ate kids' food which is something that I still have a hard time understanding on menus. Yeah, chicken fingers. I don't yeah. know, just kids' meals in general. We ate what my parents ate. Yeah. And fortunately enough for me and my uh, sisters, uh, my parents liked eating. So we just ate whatever they ate, and I think that was a, a big advantage. Yeah. And your first taste of cooking wasn't until you actually joined the military. Uh, it was a bit earlier. My mom worked uh, until pretty late, and I remember a lot of phone calls in the afternoon, like, I'm going to run late, yeah. so uh, can you just grab a few things and make dinner? Yeah. And uh, I think that was the first experience with my younger sister. We were both really into cooking and just grabbing stuff and reading cookbooks. And and then, obviously, the military, as uh, many of uh, you know, the Israelis, uh, I was a sergeant, and I had to you know, be in charge of the cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times they didn't show up or they <laughs> were sick or whatever, and I found myself cooking. Yeah, what kind of cuisine were you making? Uh, it's uh, basically heat and send. That's yeah. the term. <laughs> you just heat whatever you have yeah. and yeah. You just send it out and hope for the best. Peel the foil off. And yeah, and sitting in some uh, hostile countries with a little, like, um, a fuel cook cook stove or cooktop and just cooking for uh, 200 uh, people in the middle of nowhere was uh, an interesting experience yeah. so i mean was everything bland did you ever find yourself interjecting spices to maybe you know uh, not at that point yeah no that was a bit later on yeah because after the army uh-huh seems kind of random but started working for a small trout smoking business well i had to make some money uh <laughs> and uh i didn't know exactly yeah. what i and i the kibbutz where i was born uh one of the special things about it they have a very big uh fish uh farm industry yeah so that wasn't something that was uh new to me trouts yeah. and things like that and with uh, another person from that area we kind of uh, started a small uh place of trout smoking and trout products yeah what kind of products did you make it's whole it was basically whole grilled the whole baked trouts that were then frozen and sent all over the countries to restaurant uh, that did, did not have cooking facilities so they can only microwave or heat 
in the oven. And <laughs> you, you've lived that life before in the military. <laughs> I lived that life before. So then I had to think of uh, a person home that wanted to serve a great smoked trout or a great grilled trout, but didn't want to cook it. Yeah. Just want to warm it up. So it was an interesting experience, definitely. Yeah. And how long were you doing that for? About a year and a half doing anywhere from, uh, I'd say, 600 pounds to 1,500 pounds a day of trouts. Yeah. Which is very large quantities. Yeah. And... After, you know, a good 18 months of smoking fish, what was I your went, next move? I went away uh, for uh, about a year uh, trip to South America. And I basically did nothing much except for uh, spending time in markets, cooking for uh, friends of mine who were hiking and doing a lot of uh, physical activities that I wasn't really into. <laughs> I was just waiting at the end of yeah, the day yeah. and say, when you come back, I'll cook something. Yeah, that, that seems like a good goal, though, to yeah. come back and have a home cook. Exactly. Meal. So I was fishing for trout in places like Argentina or Chile. And, you know, I had a fishing rod and just cooked whatever was around. And it was a year of a lot of fun, a lot of cooking, a lot of new ingredients that I was never exposed yeah. to before. Like which ones? Like some uh, uh, dried potatoes in Peru that are dried in high altitude in order to preserve them for the rest of the year so they're only in season for a little while and then so they dry them and then they hydrate them again in seasons throughout the year and uh, a lot of chilies a lot of different kind of corns uh, things like that the arepas in Colombia and uh, things like that fresh coconut that you know I never got to eat or cook with yeah, uh, especially in Colombia. So I came back with a lot of very interesting ideas about uh, cooking, and uh, basically had to get another job. <laughs> and cooking, cooking was something that I I started liking more and more, but yet I had no experience. And yeah. every place I went to, they go like, "Oh, did you go to school?" And I said, "No." So they said, "Well, you could start by you know peeling uh, some carrots or washing dishes, and then we'll see how goes." And uh, I was very fortunate to find uh, this small catering company uh, with basically one one chef cook and another assistant, and he basically adopted me and said, "I'll I'll teach you how to cook," you know, in a very calm uh, environment. Yeah, and where in the world was this? That was in Israel, in a little town called Rishon LeZion, and. Uh, basically, I worked with him for three years, uh, doing events. Or up to a thousand people in so cooking on a very large scale yeah. and cooking also outdoors one of the biggest thing that we did there was uh cater events but outdoors so on mountains in little valleys near rivers without a lot of cooking equipment so it's the ability of how to cook outdoors yet to do great food uh well i mean it's also interesting to note that a lot of people know that plain food is not as tasteful as yeah. when you're on sea level and even higher altitudes such sure. as Denver in the United States, sure. but that you have to interpret uh, taste and spices and those types of senses uh, by, you know, uh, yeah. interpreting the world around you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that was great. That was three amazing years. But I think we both, him and I, realized that I needed to do something else with my life. Yeah. And uh, uh, I moved to uh, France. I went to the Paul Bocuse Institute in Eculi, which is right outside of Lyon, yeah. a beautiful castle. It's 
the dream school, if you can think of it. Exactly. Uh, can you explain a little bit about how, uh, who Paul Bocuse is? I mean, he's, well, he's a legend. Paul Bocuse is a legend in the um, food culinary world. Uh, he is probably 85 uh, years old by now. Uh, he uh, spent all of his life, basically, uh, outside of Lyon in a small restaurant uh, that he took to the next level and got his three Michelin stars. I can't tell you if it's 30 years or probably 40 years now that the restaurant has three Michelin stars and was one of the first uh, chefs that basically uh, left the kitchen and moved to the dining room to see what's happening and really had a lot of involvement in the front of the house and really uh, started talking about cooking and you know and um, being a little bit the ambassador of cooks all over the world and uh, so basically creating uh, for the first time another uh, you know different aspects of cooks that are not just behind the stove or in the kitchen and uh, really maintained throughout these old years a very classic Lyonnaise cuisine you know throughout the whole nouvelle cuisine and then the fusion and everything stayed very true to the origin and the cooking of Lyon and also uh, really uh, promoting usage of you know local ingredients and local cuisine you yeah. know it's whatever is around you just work with it you know and whatever is in season and whatever is also traditional you know and stayed really true to all of that and is accepted, I think, by everybody worldwide as, you know, if we can say the godfather of cuisine of yeah. uh, the new era. Well, I mean, he has the Olympics of cooking. Yeah, uh, the Bocuse d'Or. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so he uh, was asked to give his name or to become the, also the, the president, the honorary president of that school in, in Eculi that he... Uh, founded and today is named after him and he's always talking about his legacy that would be him and his restaurant which would become uh, some sort of a museum or a culinary center once he's no longer with us so the school is a very interesting not only you learn how to about cooking of course and pastry and all these things but it's also about management is if you will the equivalent of what the cia does uh, upstate new york and they do have uh, an exchange program between them uh, in the last five or six years, so that's very interesting. What they also do the same way as the CIA is they basically um, have you do two six months training uh, periods throughout your uh, culinary studies. I was fortunate to do six months in the south of France, in Serre, near Perpignan, yeah. which is the Catalan uh, region. And then the second stage, which was one of the highlights of uh, my culinary career, I would say, were in uh, Cancal in Brittany, uh, working for a person called Olivier Rollinger, uh, the Maison de Bricourt, that uh, shut its doors about two years ago. He yeah. basically gave away his Michelin stars. But that was a highlight in my in my career. I mean, and, and that's someone who you consider not only a spice master, but really someone that solidified your cooking philosophy. We became friends very, very fast. I mean, and uh, he, one of the first phrases that he told me is that you cannot learn how to cook. And when I asked how come, and he said, well, cooking is a way of expressing love, or some emotions, whether you're in a fast food, it's about satisfying some needs. And the same way you cannot learn how to love, thus you cannot learn how to cook. 
and I think that really I went back and started thinking again about why do I do what I do is basically making people happy yeah. you know and satisfying people and uh, thinking that it's it's very selfish a lot of the time we create some dishes thinking that somebody else is going to like them without even thinking of who is our a client or who is our uh, you know husband wife kids and so on and so forth and the fact that he chose to stay where he was born in in that house in Brittany and you know cook with what was around him but also open up to what was out there you know so uh and he basically started teaching me about spices and about the history and the trade and I found it fascinating yeah. you know that uh, we take for granted you know a jar of three ounces of pepper today in a supermarket there's so much more to it yeah and uh I think that was one of the moments when I realized that this is maybe my calling in life. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the fact that he didn't need me in the kitchen after a very short period and asked me to move to the pastry and was one of the best things that he ever also done for my yeah. career is to show me another aspect. Well, we're going to take a quick break and talk about your transition to New York working for Danielle. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Lior Lev Sarkar's Spice Blender. <laughs> but I also want to give the website. Uh, it's La Boite New York, yeah. L-A-B-I-O-T-E. No, O-I-T-E. O-I-T-E-N-Y.com. Yeah, La Boite. I knew I was going to screw that. I pronounced it right. But... Or La Boite, as many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... We're going to attempt to correct everybody's French. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but France, you know, moving from the south to Brittany, uh, then there was a big transition overseas to, in 2002, work for Daniel Balut. Yeah. After five years of living in France, which were amazing, definitely, uh, I wanted to see something else. And um, I had the opportunity to go and work in New York for Daniel Boulut. So I uh, packed my uh, stuff pretty much and moved to New York in 2002 to work for Danielle. Uh, overall, I spent about four and a half years at uh, Danielle. Uh, I started doing the uh, private events at Danielle, the banquets, what's called. And again, very fast, we developed this uh, friendship and uh, shared a lot of interest of traveling and spices and, and international cooking. And I was more than fortunate to travel quite a bit with Danielle to do events all over the U.S. and work on some of his cookbooks and uh, food styling and so on and so forth. And yeah. So that was also interesting. And uh, 
I also established a small spice program at Danielle. One of my Christmas gifts was a spice shelf that exists until today at Danielle in the main kitchen. Yeah, what spice is it? It hosts about 70 to 80 different spices from all over the world. And basically, I created a small program uh, where cooks could just, you know, go pick up those spices. They have a little bit of uh, reading material about what they are and Every week when I go to do my deliveries at Danielle and I walk into the kitchen and I see the shelf, I think it was a big achievement, yeah. you know, to see uh, young cooks that never heard of so many things just going and grabbing things. So these are single varietals. These single, are not blends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. are single. We also worked on a few spices and blends and things like yeah. that that I used until today. And uh, my last two and something years there, I uh, was the head chef of his catering company, Uh which was also very interesting, yeah. doing uh, about seven... So that spice rack is, when you're walking out the doors to do service, is to the left? Yeah, yeah. it's the doors that lead to the dining room, yes, basically, yes, yes. from the kitchen. So it's a really nice uh, selection of glass That's jars. An, I always find myself, when I'm in that kitchen photographing, uh, up against that corner, not only to be out of the way, but uh-huh. to look at all the spices uh-huh. and yeah. read them. And sometimes, sorry, Danielle, you may yeah. not know I do this, <laughs> take them off the shelves and smell and yeah. taste. And So that was uh, my Christmas gift yeah. from uh, Monsieur Boulou. Excellent. And what were some of the more interesting spices that you feel like you introduced to Danielle in this kitchen? I think some uh, elements like uh, barberries, uh, like they're used a lot in Persian cuisine called zereshk. And uh, Zuta, which is a wild mint that comes from Israel also. That's very interesting. And uh, at that time, the black garlic, was, which was just starting, and today you'll find in many, many different uh, kitchens. Vetiver, which is reserved mainly for the perfume industry. Yeah, I just know it as the smell of fresh-cut grass. Yeah, yeah. so it's something that uh, throughout uh, those years, one day I got a request from, uh, I don't know if you can mention any brands on this show, oh, yeah, you can yeah, edit completely. from uh, Hermes yeah. to uh, create a lunch uh, menu at Hermes itself uh, with the nose, the person who creates perfumes. Uh, around the new perfume that they were launching. Yeah. So that was a great experience. We made all these dishes. It was a squab dish with a jus that was made with bois d'inde, which is sandalwood. Yeah. And then uh, a dessert, which was made with the vetiver. And uh, a lot of interesting things and how the perfume industry and the cooking world are so... Uh, close to one another yeah, extremely intertwined yeah, yeah absolutely but uh i mean obviously there's that difference between tongue and nose yes um do you when you taste spices is there a specific way you taste them and smell them the process of tasting and uh working around spices and and then on about blends which is what i do mainly yeah. today is to first of all test taste i i taste them i want to see the texture i want to see the flavor uh, the visuals, the color, their size, uh, how they're going to crack once they're uh, grind. Uh, all of these things tell me a lot. Uh, you know, when I heat them up, I chill them, I boil them, I ground them. It's it's the same way that if you receive a great piece of meat from um, uh, a farm that you never work with, you'd, you'd want to try and get the maximum out of it and know how it could be showcased the best yeah. possible way. I, and and yeah. this, again, is with just single varietals rather than... Just, yeah, that's to start with, just yeah. with a pure single spice. And then from that moment on, we go into the process of making a blend, yeah. which is more complex. Do you remember the first blend that you made? 
yeah, it still exists. It's the Pierre Poivre, which is yeah. uh, that, one of the most, I think, we're close to... Is that the eight pepper blend? It's eight slash 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, if you will, the, yeah, there's officially eight. There's more than that uh, yeah. because we go into different kinds of the same black pepper. Uh, it's uh, not only a great blend and one of the best sellers in the last five years, but also, I think, a story that resumes uh, what I do. Yeah. It's, do you actually have the spice here that sure. we can... Lior was nice enough to bring these beautiful little boxes of all his blends. So, unfortunately, this is not a scratch and sniff radio show, but I'll be yeah. trying to do my best to give you little smell notes. So the Pierre Poivre, if we have a minute about this blend, it's uh, a blend of peppers, like we said, in the idea that I wanted to showcase how peppers are not only about heat. It's about their texture. It's about the scents, the aromas. Yeah. It's how it develops once you start eating them. And when we talk about pepper, generally people uh, narrow it down to, you know, black and white. If they have a little bit more it's knowledge, it's the green and the reds. They're things that are cold peppers but aren't, like the pink peppercorn, like kubeb, which are berries. Yeah. And my first goal is, I think, like in cooking, is if you can make the best steak or the best omelet, I guess you have it. You, yeah. know, you have that ability. Pierre Gagnier always says that cooking is three things is technique salt and pepper <laughs> once once you have that you you're good to go yeah you know it's the imagination so the pierre poivre was my omelet if you will is yeah. how i can make the most simple blend and uh it's named after uh, the gentleman that was called pierre poivre if you translate it to english it's peter pepper uh he was born with that name uh was um a religious person he was a missionary to the south uh south asian uh, uh, in the Indies, and the uh, was there in Mauritius, and uh, was the governor of Mauritius, and in one of his trips was uh, captured in a naval uh, battle between the Portuguese and the English, and uh, was injured, lost a part of his arm, and was sent to a prison. And once he uh, was released from that prison, since he was also very interested in plants and spices and things like that. Uh, either smuggled, we don't really know if yeah. he smuggled or just bought them, but brought two plants of clove and nutmeg back to Mauritius and planted them in his garden that exists until today. Again, knowingly or not knowingly, broke by doing so the uh, Dutch and Portuguese uh, monopoly over the spice trade. And if we today have access in a fairly reasonable price uh, to spices, is thanks to Pierre Poivre who stopped that monopoly. Uh, and that was my tribute to, you know, honor that person yeah. who is buried in Lyon in a church. Uh, and um, I think today really allowed the modern, you know, the modern cuisine to have access to spices all yeah. over the world. Well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned Monopoly because this whole time you talking simply about pepper, um, which is a spice. A lot of people just assume it to pair with salt, but mm -hmm. it's a whole other genre in it of its own. And this pepper blend is fantastically green and vibrant mm -hmm. and herbaceous at the same time i mean it's it's so fresh and usually when you smell one it smells kind of like cigarette buddy you know yeah. like ashes and just and dead and this seems so alive absolutely i mean one of the other things that i try to do at la boite is to educate a little bit or to bring more awareness that spices are you know 
it's a produce you know it grows in a field somewhere on in this planet you know it's not made in a factory somewhere in the yeah. mid, in the midwest there's seasonality so for instance last year was a horrible year for peppers because of a lot of rain and a lot of humidity so they didn't ripe properly or they when they ripe they became too dusty or they, they, you know they lost that uh, freshness so when i receive a shipment of peppers that come from indonesia or from india I, I inspect it the same way that each uh, restaurant owner or chef in the city inspect their delivery. And if it's not up to the standards that I need, I will send it back because I'm bound to do a great job. I can't do miracles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you go into anybody's standard cupboard and uh, you can assume that there's been a spice there for years. Yeah. Stale, yeah. stagnant, lost all its inherent value, but it's still often used. Uh, that there is a shelf life to these things as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, they will never go bad yeah. as far as making you ill or anything like that, but they'll definitely lose their th strength or their potential. I would say that if you bought a spice in a jar, I would not keep it for over a year yeah. or more than a year. Uh, that's why I always encourage people to buy smaller quantities. If you're up to the challenge and buying them whole and grinding them yourself, that's fantastic. But I definitely not expect everybody yeah. to do so. So there's nothing wrong with buying uh, ground spices as long as you know where you bought it from. Yeah. It's, again, the same way that you'll go to the effort of knowing the guy who sell you your tomatoes, meat, or uh, yeah, dairy products. Exactly. Why don't you... Uh, know, you know your spice blender. Exactly, or your spice store or your spice provider. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's great, too, is you talk about knowing the person behind it, but it's also knowing the place where these things have come from. Sure. Uh, you have great blends like the Marrakesh. Mm -hmm. um, though I've never been to Marrakesh, but I know the Crosby Stills not song very well. Uh, cumin, cinnamon, thyme. Uh, it's supposed to be like the marketplaces kind of uh, that you know the blends fervor. the blends don't have and it's another thing they don't have a specific purpose at la boite piece i basically encourage you or anybody else to open a jar smell it and tell me what you'd like to do they have a name that reflects the origin or some sort of an inspiration the marrakesh is a tribute to uh, morocco of course and north africa although it's very different from yeah. one country to the other. And uh, those elements that you mentioned, the, the cinnamon and the cumin, what's unique about the Moroccan cuisine, one of the things is that it combines sweet and savory notes, Yeah, uh, which uh, the next-door neighbors don't, like Tunisia and Egypt and things like that. We talk about North African cuisine, which is like saying American cuisine. Yeah. So Moroccan cuisine will uh, combine sweet and savory notes, thus cinnamon but with cumin yeah it has uh, a lot of like dried lemon to uh -huh. it too so it's a very coarse grind blend you know the coriander seeds are left uh, on purpose are, are cut in half yeah because another uh, element is texture once you start eating this uh, marrakesh blend i really want uh, another element to you know come out front which is the texture yeah of that blend um what are some of your more exciting uh you know blends to yourself right now i mean the isafan is something that i know from i think pierre herme blends yeah. and the isfahan is uh named after the the town the persian yeah. town and it has uh, dried lemons that also became kind of popular in the last two or three years i see more and more people calling me and asking uh to buy them uh it's traditionally used in uh, Persian cuisine for uh, a lot of uh, 
soups, stews, uh, broth, and uh, it's a very floral, uh, very citrus, of course, with those uh, dried lemons. But I chose to add some cardamom and some garlic yeah. to give them a little bit more depth. Uh, so that's very interesting. And again, you could take that uh, blend and use it for, of course, soups and stews, but make rice dishes. You can make poultry with it. And uh, it's endless, the possibilities, yeah. even, even uh, seafood. Talking about the versatility, I mean, some of these have made it in the cocktails, haven't they? Some of them, yeah. And again, the, the beautiful thing about those blends is that I see it every day. What uh, a person on the Upper East Side uses for lamb, uh, you have another one in Midtown that makes desserts with them. And there's somebody downtown who makes cocktails with them. So I see these uh, mixologists, I guess that's the new term yeah. and nowadays, uh, come to the store or call me and say, listen, we're working on this new uh, drink. What can we do? So the same way I've dealt uh, so far with my chef clients is building a blend for a dish. Now we talk about drinks and how, what are the components, what season it is for, and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. If you were to put together a Brooklyn blend, what would it consist of? A Brooklyn blend? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of concrete, a yeah. little bit of... It all, it, again, it really depends who it's for. Yeah. And what's the place. Uh, my next, one of my next challenges is beers. Excellent. Uh, talking about Brooklyn. It's, uh, and I have a lot of contacts in the last couple of months from either people who make beer at home or for beer makers that are more, you know, uh, it's more industrial. Yeah. And uh, creating something for them. Excellent. So using hops and using greens? Uh, no, using still the spices. Yeah. Uh, although we have been talking about cooking with hops a little bit lately. Yeah. But uh, no, using the spices and understanding what's the goal. Where do we want to go? What beer we want to make? And uh, how I can be of help uh, for them. Uh, so it's it's a very interesting uh, challenge. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Excellent. If you've not been to Lior's shop... Uh, stop by 11th Avenue and what? And 51st. You know, he gets lonely there in the <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> or check out labroitenewyork.com. That's labroite, L A B O I T E N Y.com. Correct. Got it right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, see what he's blending up. Know your spice blender. Thank you, Lior, for being on the food scene. Thank you very much. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Thank you. Ciao. Behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. The long awaited documentary, The Vanishing of the Bees, will be screening in Astoria, Queens at the Broadway branch of the Queens Public Library on Monday, September 19th. I know that seems like a long ways away, but it isn't. It will be broadcast from 6 to 8 p.m. More information about this fascinating look at bee life and colony collapse disorder can be found at their website at www.vanishingbees.com. 
I also wanted to add that the producers are all working on a 30-minute educational video for high school students, so any parent or teacher should check out the site to see what he or she can do to work with the team to bring this into a school curriculum. The film has a Facebook page as well that discusses current events that affect bees. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. 